Welcome to Future Explorations. I'm glad you can join us. My name is Victor Martinez, and this podcast is dedicated to the exploration of the diversity in perspectives around the concepts of change as a constant we humans need to embrace, long-term thinking as an approach for everything we should build and create, and the limits that our human nature, physiology, society, environment, and technology impose on us by their own intrinsic characteristics. It is your task and mine to identify the connections between all views, to discover the interdependence and complementarity of knowledge and ideas. In that way, we might get a clearer picture of what that sustainable future could look like and how we can design the transition to get us there. Today I have the honor to talk to Dr. Ellie Perkins. Dr. Patricia Ellie Perkins is a professor in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change in York University, Toronto, where she teaches ecological economics, community economic development, climate change science and policy, and critical interdisciplinary research design. She has also taught at Eduardo Moldlane University in Maputo, Mozambique, she holds a PhD in economics from the University of Toronto and has authored many publications on feminist ecological economics, climate justice, commons, and participatory governance. Her research and community projects with civil society and university partners address environmental and climate injustice, economic inequities, and the transition to a sustainable provisioning. She is a lead author on the chapter five demands services and social aspects of mitigation of the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report. She directed international research projects on community-based watershed organizing in Brazil and Canada, and on climate justice and equity in watershed management with partners in Mozambique, South Africa, and Kenya. Her most recent international project with partners in Brazil, Chile, South Africa, Cameroon, Kenya, Mozambique, and Nigeria is building a global network of participatory researchers on climate justice, ecological economics, and commons governance. Professor Perkins, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. It's a pleasure, it's an honor to have you here. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you, thank you very much. So I would like to start by um, asking you a little bit about yourself, um, whatever you want to share with us, uh, especially what, what took you to, to study um, ecological economics? Well, I actually never studied ecological economics okay. formally in my, uh, during my undergraduate, my master's program and my PhD, but I decided to do uh, a graduate, graduate work in economics because I was concerned about being a better activist. <laughs> I, was, I, uh, I wanted to really understand the concepts of economics because I felt it would increase my credibility as an activist. Um, most, of, most political decisions are made with uh, economics in mind. Economics serves as uh, to, to create a justification for politicians, but also for individuals and businesses uh, with regard to how much things cost, whether things are needed in society. And um, 
all, all kinds of decision making. And so I felt that in order to critique the way society is structured and to understand how power relations work in our society, it was important to really get a grip on how neoclassical economics works and, and why the, the bottom line considerations that are us usually raised uh, turn out the way they do. So I um, decided to do a, a PhD in political, in, I wanted to study political economics. In other words, I, the, the interrelationship between the political process and, and economic theory and, and uh, economic ideas about decisions. And uh, at the time in the 80s, when I was thinking about doing this, the University of Toronto was the only university that still included its political scientists and its economics in this, economists in the same department. They, in other words, U of T was where you could study political economics. Okay. So I applied there mm -hmm. and I got in. And the summer before I started my PhD, they split the political science department from the economics department. Okay. So I ended up doing economics, not political economics, but I was still doing it anyway because I was thinking about it, right? As I was studying economics. I see, I see. So if, for <laughs> example, if, if uh, nowadays a person wants to do a PhD in, in political economics, uh, how, how do you do? Uh, I... All departments you say are, are now separated. You will have to find uh, an advisor that already works in that field, or how? Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't want to make a blanket statement. I believe some maybe there are some places in Europe where you can okay. study political economics, uh, political economy, uh -huh. um, and of course you can still do it. Many many people go to political science departments when they are interested in political economy. Okay. But I really wanted to get that credential and challenge my brain around how neoclassical economics works. So that's why I decided to go to the economics side. Excellent. Yeah, I, I, I share much, much of the feeling that you know, of what you describe uh, uh, now, because I, I'm, I'm a designer, obviously, I'm, I, I, my understanding of economics is very, very small. But um, <laughs> In my PhD as well, I, I realized the importance of economics in all decisions, uh, especially in, in the design field, in design work. So I, on top of my interest of systems thinking, so I, I decided to read a little bit and, and, and be more aware of what, how and what, no, how it works and where they come from, where it come from and so on. Um, so I, I would like to start by um, asking some very basic things about our economic system. Um, this is this is normally something that I do in my classroom. So this is this is going to be a, a good checkup to see if I'm doing it right or I'm missing something. Especially precisely when I'm when I'm discussing uh, uh, the relation between design and design decisions with economics and how many of the design decisions that we supposed to take we cannot take it because um, we don't have really the power. The power comes from from high above in this term, you no, know, the the economics and what is ruling. So. Um, I would like to start just by, by uh, going through the, the basic etymology of the word, because I also found that in, at least in the English speaking countries is, is missing that part. And, and me, well, my, my um, mother tongue is, is Spanish, which you know, comes from Latin that is closely uh, um, related to French and so on, and Portuguese. 
Um, and etymology is something that we live all the time uh, because it, it, it helps us understand the, the, meaning, the meaning of words. And it's, it's, I think it's more, very, very important. So economics comes from the Greek, not Latin, Greek, but um, echo, which means home, and nomos, that means accounts. So the, the sense of, you know, the essence of the word economics is just keeping the accounts of home, you know, of the family. You know? yes. it's, important, it's important not to forget that. Um, right. And from there, um, I would like to jump a little bit about uh, the, the, the basis of capitalism. So what I normally do with my students to explain capitalism is first the historical con context. So um, the uh, Wealth of Nations, you know, the, 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 one of the most important books at the beginning of economics of, of capitalism was written in, in 1776. It's more than 300 years old. And, and it's very important, the, the historical concept, because I think at, uh, to, to understand that way, at that time, the, there was, um, the, the Industrial Revolution was just starting. There was still, for example, slavery was okay in most of the world. So it's, it's important to understand these, these things and, and how much has changed humanity and how much one of some of the assumptions of, of in the wealth of nations, like the rational man and so on, uh, make, make little sense uh, right now. But again, when I'm trying to explain capitalism, I say it's very basic. No, you have capital, land and labor. And you invest capital in land and labor to transform on labor to transform uh, um, uh, land, which resources could be the better word now, and labor jobs, um, in order to to gain capital back. So the focus of of the idea, main idea of of capitalism, is to increase capital and the concentration of capital. There is no no intrinsic uh, order embedded in capitalism for the distribution of that capital. The, the main idea, if, if I own capital, I invested in order to, to gain more capital. So from that point of view, uh, the most efficient way to increase capital is to increase the efficiency in how I use my resources and labor, which at the end, you know, if you add the, the idea of free, free market, um, it's, it's easy to understand that if I, as a capitalist, wants to increase my yield in capital, then I have to do labor more efficient and makes complete sense if I find somebody else that is doing the same job for less money. That's how, you know, jobs from, from, from places like Canada or the U.S. have moved to places like China. So it's, it's not that, um, you know, the Chinese took our jobs. It's, it's more the idea of that <clears throat> the, the this structure of capitalism is is has made kind of has makes us kind of victims of our own device no is 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 intrinsic in 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 those rules so <clears throat> that that's more or less my explanation very very simple i am i am leaving leaving out some important stuff or is that i'm more or less right in that in that sense i think that um what you have described is uh as a summary of the, the way um, neoclassical economics assumes that economic systems work. Um, but I have, there, there, there are some important critiques of the, of the kind of perspective on that that you've just outlined. From the, from the, on the, on the with regard to distribution, um, 
Adam Smith says that uh, markets work as if by an invisible hand to mediate and, and equilibrate, make, bring together the supply of things that are available for people to consume with the demand for people to, to consume them. And that demand depends on, of course, whether people have money to buy in the market the goods that they need, which can be everything from food to fancy clothes. It could be everything from basic necessities to luxury goods. So mm -hmm. there, there are some problems with how the market equilibrates supply and demand, and therefore how it, um, what its impact is on equity across mm -hmm. human populations, both within countries and internationally. But be, before that question of, of, of uh, distribution comes the question of how the neoclassical model uh, understands those things that you outlined, labor and capital and land or resources. When a business uh, mines metal, iron ore, or coal, or cuts down trees, or gets fish out of the ocean. They are taking those things from nature for free. They have no cost. They're not. Yes. They're not. The, the only cost they 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 have to bear is the cost of the people that they hire, or the ships that they need to to make, or the machines that they that they yes. need to make in order to facilitate that extraction from nature. And therefore, the capitalist or the business that we're talking about, and the governments that 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 lie behind this and facilitate it, are not really paying the true cost of those inputs to the economic system. And they have every incentive in the world to take it all, and then to go somewhere else and take it all from there. Yes. And that explains globalization and imperialism and the climate crisis. Pretty much, yes. But I'm not done. Yes. On the labor side, on the labor side, who are these workers? Who are yes. these workers that are there to be hired? Well, they are young adults or even sometimes children. They're people of working age. How do those people even speak a language so you can communicate with them? Mm -hmm. How do they have a moral code or some discipline? so that you can hire them and assume that they will come to work every day and be paid and not trash your factory. Mm -hmm. They have been raised by someone. They have been given birth to by someone. They have been fed when they were a baby. Mm -hmm. They have been sheltered in a house until they are old enough to become workers. Yes. Those costs are also not paid by the firms. Who, who, in fact, they're not paid by anybody because a lot of that work is unpaid work, what we yes. call unpaid work. It is contributed by those children's parents when they're sick, when even when they're workers. Who takes care of them? Who brings them soup? <laughs> you know, who, yeah. who, who puts a blanket over them, right? Somebody is doing that to maintain that worker as an input for the capitalist system. Yes. And when they're old and when they retire, uh, they are also cared for by people. And largely it's by women. And largely those women are not paid. They don't receive 
even a pension when they themselves become old mm-hmm. because of, you know, which, which ethically I would say should accrue to them because of all the work they've put into that system through their whole lives. Yeah. So what I'm trying to outline here is sort of a critique, but a, but a bigger picture of what happens and how capitalist the capitalist system and the neoclassical economics that describes that capitalist system only shows a partial view. It, in, in the words of some, of, of some feminist economists, it, it shows like an iceberg. You, you can see the part of the iceberg that's above the water, mm-hmm. but that iceberg that, that's above the water is supported by ice that's under the water that's 90 percent you know that's 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 not much bigger than the part that you see yes and is is very important to support that visible economic system yeah the problem from a sustainability point of view is if you just chip away at that at, 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 at the support structures if you ignore them and therefore your decisions don't pay any attention to the importance of their continuing, then you're gonna have a crisis. Mm-hmm. It can't, it, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And we sure. are coming to that point. And I think COVID has demonstrated in many ways uh, how, what that crisis looks like and, and, and the, ele- the main elements of the crisis. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much for that. There, there is um, so many other things to say, um, but I'll just stop there. There is just one more point, uh, and then we, we move on to ecological economics. I think this is, this is an important base to understand even why ecological economics came to be. But before moving there, um, I think there is another important distinction to make, and that is the difference between the economic model and the form of government. They're not the same thing and they don't have to be attached necessarily one to the other. I'm speaking basically thinking about democracy and capitalism. Um, and because I, I think people believe that they are attached, they are not, it's impossible to separate. And if, we, if you lose one, you lose the other. And obviously I don't think that's true. And there are two basic examples and there are many others, but the, the clearest ones is, is for example, China and the US. There could not be more opposite uh, uh, examples. No, there are completely different different uh, models of government, but also in, in some aspects that are similar, but there are also very different um, uh, ways of even looking at capitalism. One is a state control and the other one is based on free market. But there is, there is I think, the importance of this separation, um, a bit like some of some countries that want a secular state and has separated church from, from government to understand that that economic model and the form of government are not the same thing. So thinking in that perspective, then what will be the role of government in the the economics, in the the accounts of our house? No, because at the end, it's it's a larger question that I know is a bit off topic. I would like to to ask a a political scientist, the big question of what is the role of government in a a society? But from the economic aspect, I know it may be hard to answer shortly, but what would you say is the role of government? The the ideology of economics teaches us that, or would like us to believe that uh, economies function 
in and of themselves that government inter intervention is not needed or in fact usually interferes with the clean functioning of the market. But in fact, ever since even going back to 1776 and, even, and more and more nowadays, those capitalist, so-called capitalist markets can't function at all without a lot of government intervention. They need ports, they need airports, they need infrastructure, they need roads, they need regula regulation, they need labor markets, they need, they need um, uh, all kinds of regulatory and actual physical material intervention uh, that, it, that comes from tax money that is largely levied on individual wage earners, which is taxing the wrong thing, in my humble opinion. You want to tax fads, not goods. But um, the, this, this interrelationship between um, government systems and the economic systems that, um, that also are foundational to society mm -hmm. um, are, it, it's, it's, it can't be separated. Yeah. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying, oh, you have to have democracy to have capitalism. There's also a lot of a lot of confusion there. Yes. In fact, the the most um, extractive and um, authoritarian type economic systems usually are accompanied by authoritarian government structures. Yes, 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 absolutely. I agree. the The idea of of um, the form of government um, in, in in this case, I'm obviously a pro democratic. Um, the <clears throat> one of one of the ways that I explain also I touch this with my students. Uh, the, uh, at least for me, the the uh, one of the most important roles of the government is is precisely this idea of regulations that you mentioned. And I'm I'm I, I know it must be more much more complex than this for sure. But what I'm what I'm referring mostly is is the these these rules that were set so many years ago understanding that the world has changed and those rules are are haven't really changed and the that this this invisible hand um is based on 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 the idea of uh, rationality of man that psychology has proven that is 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 not at all real you know we we don't make rational decisions humans are some of the most irrational things that, that we can imagine. Um, so thinking of regulations to, to protect uh, from abuse. Um, for me, that's the most uh, simple simple answer on, on why regulations, regulations are important. Um, those with power will obviously try to maintain the power and grow it. That's what we've been taught. And as I mentioned at the beginning, that's the whole idea of capitalism. No? The ones that have capital want to increase it. Uh, and no intention of distribution. The, the, the idea of regulation is, is to avoid those extremes. And one of the worries that I, I, I have personally, and I have heard many people have, is that the, the, uh, the government has been, uh, in many cases, intervened by, by economic powers and for their own benefit. So that's a, that's a worrying situation, I think, that we have now. And I know we're getting into polemics and, and uh, away from our, our topic. But before going there, if you want to add or, or, or have any opinion on that. I think, uh, yeah, you're right. It gets polemical really fast. But uh, 
of course, we're not, I'm not the first theorist to think about this. There, there is theory that critiques neoclassical economics and, and uh, existing economic and political economic systems going yeah. back hundreds of years. So. Yeah, exactly. When when I was reading about economics, again, I'm 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 declaring myself ignorant. I'm just saying the things that I know, and I I'm absolutely certain that I know so much. I don't know so much. Um, but one of the things that surprised me the most is that there were critiques of this model since the beginning of the 1800s. So just a few decades after after uh, the the Wealth of Nations was published. There were many other other um, uh, academics and thinkers that that were saying, "No wait, this is not going to work," and and obviously didn't didn't pay enough attention, and and here we are now. But let's uh, let's move now into into the idea of ecological economics uh, because it's obviously a, a, a from again what I what I read about it. So a little bit the story, if I may. Um, when I was again doing my PhD and reading about economics, trying to understand the, the, the systemic aspect of, of sustainability, I started reading economics and, and suddenly I, I, I had the urge of finding alternatives. What, what other people have thought about uh, this essential idea of accounting in our home, no? the, the true essence of economics, uh, and who else has has done anything about it? And I and then I discover uh, ecological economics, and I I was amazingly surprised. Is is there are some uh, amazing notions, amazing ideas uh, uh, there? So, if if I just start asking, what what is ecological economics, and where does it come from? <laughs> ecological economics draws from neoclassical economics, tries to critique it and go beyond it by, by including the idea that, in fact, the resources on the earth are limited. Neoclassical economics assumed, back, going back to the time, as you said, of Adam Smith in the late 1700s, it seemed like there were, would always be more forests to chop down, there would always be more places to mine, there would always be more coal and fossil fuels, there would always be more fish in the sea. Um, and starting in the mid-1900s, as it became clearer and clearer that this is not really true, that, that the Earth is a limited sphere, it's energetically open to sunlight, thank goodness, and hopefully the amount of heat that comes in and light, that, heat and light that come onto the Earth will get reflected again to space in an equilibrium, but the resources that are on this globe, the water, the forests, the land, um, the mineral resources, those are not being contributed to in any way. It's a miracle how sunlight can be turned by plants into, plants capture carbon from the air and build trees and their structures out largely of that carbon. Everything that's organic, Yes, has right. been has been captured by means of sunlight from the air, literally from the air, and made into uh, the things that we burn, the things that we eat, and the things that we use for, in large part, for our for our housing and for our clothing. It's quite yeah. amazing, and for us, yeah. like we I, are organic. Yes, I, I normally I normally tell my students um, if if you think you are amazing designers and you can create amazing things. 
I'm going to give you a little bit of sunlight, a little bit of water, and a little bit of dirt. And please give me a mango. Let's see if you can make it. <laughs> Obviously, we don't, we don't really appreciate the, the, the true amazing wonders of, of the nature that we have around. I'm, I'm totally with you. It's not the materials in the dirt either, except for small trace elements. It's largely the carbon from the CO2, from the air, from the gas. Yes. Yes, that is that that is made into organic things. So ecological economics adds this consideration of limits, of material limits, mm -hmm. and there are those within the field of ecological economics who, like feminist ecological economics, are eco ecological economists who go yes and. And the ant part goes back to that question of where the workers come from, unpaid work, and uh, the, the other services, the sustaining services contributed by humans and also by non-human, more than human nature to this process of creating well-being and livelihoods and uh, a sustainable social structure within the limited, materially limited, energetically open earth that we live on. And how ecological economics um, um, provides an idea of, of this accounting of, of um, you know, the resources and labor and all that, because um, from, from what I remember still is, is precisely all about flows. Um, you know, flow of energy, flow of material, and accounting those in a way that there are no these uh, uh, externalities, no these costs that are not accounted, like you were saying before, and the the um, the, the the whole idea again, as far as I understand, is based on on energy, and the energy accumulated on on the construction or the building up of all these resources and elements. They they um, they come up with an, a, a terminology of energy, that is the all the energy embedded in 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 all the things around us, and I found that a, a very uh, attractive idea in the sense, um, and and it's somehow similar to what some of the things we do, um, in in terms I'm I'm thinking about products and 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 thinking about for example all the all the different steps that are required in order to make you know this computer, um, every single step requires energy requires labor, and some of those steps are accounted. Um, the way that you know classical economics accounts for those is 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 pretty clear. But what will be then the difference that that ecological economics proposes to do that? You're right that there are a number of different contributions that ecological economists have made to the process of, of helping people understand where, how the limits, how the resource limits and the service limits um, that, that, that make up the economy can be recognized because many of them either started out invisible like CO2 in the air being captured into, into organic things um, that's a that's a process of taking something that's invisible. We don't, our eyes don't see the air, mm -hmm. but they see a tree. Mm -hmm. Our eyes don't see an eighteen year old worker in a factory. 
I mean, they don't see the services that have gone into making that worker. They see the worker, they don't see the, the, where that came from, you know, the invisible unpaid work that, that went into making that person able to come show up for work each day. I'm speaking as a mother now. No, I, <laughs> I, not, I, I'm with you. So, so, so um, energy, as you mentioned, is a contribu contribution by, um, I don't know if he would call himself an ecological economist, but, you know, the idea of embodied energy, the energy that's embodied in uh, something or some, someone is one of the contributions. And another way to, 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 to try to uh, represent or make this, make this visible is something like the ecological footprint. Where, uh -huh. you, where you take, you know, what, what is the land that would be required to produce this thing or, or my own consumption, say, in Toronto? Um, yes. What is my ecological fit footprint? And then the, there's the, the idea of the carbon footprint, especially for, cli for climate change. How much carbon, how, much, how many CO2 emissions are embodied in this computer? Yes. Or in my sweater? Or in my, what I, in my dinner? You know, so there are a number of different ways that ecological economists are working to um, to to try to assist us in making better decisions and in bringing these realities realities related to sustainability into mm -hmm. our personal decision making and our political decision making. And there, yeah. there's, there's a, there are many of them. The journal Ecological Economics is full of these kinds of considerations. How do we come to see the limits, yeah. where they are impinging, and what we need to do in order to make our economies fit yes. and our livelihoods and protect our livelihoods and our well-being within those limits? Yes, I... I... I think it could be it could be worth to explore a little bit further the the, the idea of, of this concept of energy because what uh, it can be a bit abstract but it's a way of explaining economic value you know that 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 idea of how much something is worth um, so we were mentioning before that um, at least in classical economics uh, the value of something is 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 built with with different factors but one of this one of them is is how scarce. Uh, but not scarce necessarily in terms of how much is out there, but a scarcity in the in, in, in the sense of uh, how many people want it as well. No, uh, how much is it available, and how much people want it or buyers want it. Um, and I was I was you know again many years ago reading about this, and the, the theory of value. I know is is a is a is a is a long thing to to explain, but. Uh, one of the examples that I read is water and diamonds. Yeah, uh, diamonds are highly valuable and are completely useless. It's, it's, it's a piece of social construct that is telling us that we have status, that we can tell, we can say also about beauty, or for sure, I am all in there. I have, I, I've been guilty of participating in that and giving a couple of, of, of diamonds to my wife, but it's useless. In, in, in a very practical sense, it has no use um, other than showing status and, and, and more cultural things. But again, I, I don't want to depreciate that. It's, it's, it's important. But water is essential to life. And water is, is valued much more or less. Um, so the, the, the idea of energy, you no, know, is as, as far as I understand, is, is, 
is to have a different take on how to value things. And, and in a way that also accounts for, for these limits, you know, to say, okay, yes, water is essential to life. And not only that, is is actually scarce. Water that we can drink is only one or 2% of the total amount of water. Um, so the, the idea of economic value- if, And if, declining if, because we're polluting the surface yes. water that a <laughs> hundred years ago, there was more, a larger percentage, right? If we can explore a little bit more the, this idea of economic value and, 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 and in, in ecological economics. Uh, so I guess the, the, um, the attempt by ecological economists to, to, um, to contribute some of these alternative or, or better ways of representing what's embodied in a thing uh, the, how, and how, it, how the limits, uh, so that we can see what the limits are. Those are all attempts to um, broaden our understanding of value and how to measure value. It's all, and, and basically it's a veiled critique of the market system, which says price equals value. Mm -hmm. If it costs a lot, it's valuable. Yes. If it doesn't, it isn't. And that's just so ludicrously um, destructive, yeah. you know, to, yes. the, to, to our ability to make good decisions. And, and the idea of how how um, people can manipulate that those markets in order to to uh, you know modify prices to their own convenience. You no, know, is one yeah. example. I'm not saying that he necessarily get any any benefit from it, but it's been lately a, a very interesting case of Elon Musk tweeting things and the value of things just going up or down like crazy. Yeah. And it's the tweet of one single man. So. Right. And yes. advertising is, is, is a concerted effort to do the same thing. Of course. Yes, yes, ex exactly. And from, from there, the, the, the idea of, of really valuing things in a more, more comprehensive way, that gave rise also to the idea of um, ecosystem services. Um, Would you be so kind to let us know a little bit about these economic service, ecological services and how, how that plays in ecological economics? So the biggest ecosystem service, I think, is is the, uh, the the ability of plants and trees and forests to capture carbon and to produce oxygen for us to breathe. Right? Mm -hmm. we, there would be no animals on the work on the earth without the activity, the prior activity of plants. And I'm talking geologically in geological time now. Um, until there was oxygen in the atmosphere, there could be no animals evolved. And mm -hmm. so, but the ecosystem services. Are, are include far more than that. Um, the oceans of the world are the single largest function in capturing carbon from the air and, and allowing us to continue to, to produce all the CO2 that we do. We would be much worse off than we are without the ecosystem services provided by the oceans. And we don't know what the limits of that are. We don't know mm. exactly. I mean, oceanographers are... are are getting a better picture, but we don't know what the limits are of that um, that big service that's provided. There's so many things that uh, that so many services that are provided by the natural world mm -hmm. uh, for the economic system and for our own lives and livelihoods. So, if if I understand correctly, the idea of of, of uh, these um, ecosystem services is to understand that as, as a service is a, is a very very Capitalist. economic work. 
term. Yeah. Yeah, in the sense, in the sense that we understand what a service is. No, if you if you call um, you know service and uh, attention to service in a company, you you know what it means in that sense. So I, I think it's a very interesting way of approaching a, a, a common term that everybody knows what a service is to the biological aspect of our economy that has been denied so far. So it's, it, I found it quite interesting the idea of, of adding this, this um, very specific term of services to all the things that nature gives us that is absolutely essential to our sustainment, our living, and we don't really um, um, appreciate it and especially account for them. Many of them are, uh, we're trained not to see, I would say, uh, either because they are invisible to our eyes or because we don't have educational systems that have taught us to, we, I'm speaking of Western. Or yes. Now, yes. Uh, don't have, um, we haven't, been taught to see them and to and to respect them and to understand their contributions to our well-being. Think mm -hmm. about the 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 the, the microscopic um, uh, people that inhabit our gut, our bodies, our that that create a biome within us and allow us to digest our food. Or think about the small creatures and and um, microscopic creatures in the soils that are the decomposers that allow um organic material to be recycled and the and the trace minerals and elements that are in it to become usable by other uh life forms later yes. there's there are there are many many you know you calling them services really doesn't respect their I know. munificence yes <laughs> yes but it's, it's i think it's a it's a it's a good way to approach that idea to the general public which may not be, you know, as 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 aware or, or um, uh, you know, yeah, I guess aware of of very very technical aspects of biology, you know, and, and ecology in particular. Um, so I, I I would like to jump to something that I find is is one of the most essential and beautiful things about ecological economics that I I I came across, and obviously comes from this idea of understanding the ecological services ecosystem services and, and how ecology actually works. And that is, is the idea of, of optimal scale. No, it's, it's, uh, and, I, and, I, and I now mention Herman Daly because uh, I, I, he's one of the most prominent uh, ecological economists uh, that I know of. Um, nothing in nature grows forever. Uh, trees reach a point of, of maximum growth and there are very, very specific, you know, physics and chemistry rules for why that happens. Um, populations of different organisms, they, they, they don't grow and necessarily keep steady. They, they uh, fluctuate. And, and that again, as, as far as I understand, um, is, is, is based on simple rules of, of uh, thermodynamics, no? Is how much <clears throat> energy embed is in a rabbit and how many rabbit uh, a wolf needs to eat in order to maintain his life? No, it's life. Um, and and then you have this this chain of energy and, and matter just just flowing. Um, when you don't have when when wolves don't have enough rabbits, sadly some of the wolves will not live. No, and and then populations uh, decrease. So Herman Daly um, was. Um, exploring this idea of, of um, first, uh, uh, classical economics has, has no concept of, of, of optimal scale. 
the, the, the idea is uh, continuous unlimited growth, which makes absolutely no sense in a closed system like Earth. But if, if we could talk a little bit about this idea of, of optimal scale, because then Daly came with this, this very interesting uh, 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 um, idea of steady state of economics. So could, could we explore a little bit that? Yeah, um, I think uh, you've you've uh, you've you've explained it in a in a fairly simplified way, and I think in in some ways that's true, and in other ways there's a lot of unknowns about why why populations of lemmings or monarch butterflies fluctuate, or, or you know any any species may fluctuate because of a lot of um, interactions within the ecosystem, some yes. of which are 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 pretty straightforward as you outlined it, some of which are not very well understood. Yes. But in any case, um, let's talk about the human population and the, the way in which the number of humans on the earth affects our CO2 production and also our demand for material inputs and energetic inputs to, the, to, uh, to, to sustain us and, and, and provide well-being and livelihoods for the people that are here. One way to say, one way to, you know, to look at the, the situation that we're in now, the climate crisis that we're in, is to say, well, you know, it, there are too many people. And especially there are too many people in the global north who are consuming 100 times more than the average Chinese or African or, or South Asian person. So in order to solve the cr climate crisis, let's just put something in the water in Europe, North America, and Australia, so that people don't have children. Would that solve our problem? Some people have done already some really horrible things. This is a very dark path to go into. It's a very dark path, and it, I, it ignores something that I feel is very important and is also present in Herbin Daly's work, which yes. is the relationship between equity and scale. Yes. Right. Um, we know from empirical research about something called the demographic transition, which is the, the, the time at which human populations tend to level off and, and stop increasing at a, yes. at a high rate. The, demogra the demographic transition happens when livelihoods and well-being are protected for most people to the point that they don't need to have as many people as as many children as they can in order to ensure that they will be able to eat now and in their old age. Secondly, the demographic transition happens when women have their economic well-being assured whether or not they have children. In other words, when women are able to enter the labor, mark, labor market, when, it, when women are able to get paid for the work that they do, then they don't have to have children in order to support them. And their, will, their, their uh, value isn't seen as related to how many children they have. So these questions of equity are so closely in, interrelated with the um, the size of the human economy and what happens with the resources, what happens with the resources that we do um, bring into our economic ambit. 
is, is really crucially related to how much and what kind of production happens and also to how, how people reproduce themselves, how, yeah. many children, how many children societies have. And that in turn is related to these questions of scale. So it's all part of a picture. Yes. And yes. it's all you know, interrelated in the same picture. And uh, for me, many ecological economists look more at the material boundaries and don't consider these service boundaries and these equity uh, distribution questions, mm -hmm. which it seems to me are equally, if not more important in getting yeah. us to a better spa space materially and energetically. Yes. I yes you wow that was that was pretty amazing you mentioned so so many so many important things uh, that I think it will be worth to just go and touch a couple uh, first the 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 idea of population yes for sure I, I agree that there are there are so many studies um, that have shown that if obviously population the, the amount of population that we have today um, raises their standards of living um, will just push the limits of the planet to a completely unsustainable. But then what, what you mentioned is extremely important. Uh, I, I would like to make a very, very uh, uh, decisive and, and very clear comment here that the, the because there are many, many assumptions uh, that the question of where the population is growing and growing faster what is the contribution of that population towards the problems of the planet, specifically talking about climate uh, change? And what can we do in order to stop that population growth or diminish that population growth? So just, just starting by, by, by saying that, and you mentioned it, that the, the, the biggest contributors to um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions is being the global, global north. And the global south is what people normally assume is the population that is growing faster, which in many cases it is. Um, there are some really horrible examples of what some groups in the global north has done with a very narrow mind thinking that what we need to do is just make the, make the people from the global south have less children. And, and I'm, I come from Latin America. And I know, and I, 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 there are so many stories of, you know, missionaries from churches in, 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 in the U.S., for example, that have gone to Amazon, uh, the, the jungle and other places in Latin America and, and have, um, I, I don't remember now the, the, the terminology, the medical terminology, but have um, done physical changes to women's bodies in order to inhibit them to have children. And that, that has no other word than a crime. So the, the importance of, of knowing exactly what is happening, I found uh, um, an amazing researcher um, from Sweden. His name is Hans Rosling. Sadly, he, he died a few years ago. But in, in a website that is called Gapminder, um, he, he has some really amazing uh, talks explaining in a beautiful, mar marvelous way uh, precisely where these changes are happening, you know, where the population is growing, and, and, and he is very good at getting rid of some of those assumptions. 
Um, and the other topic that you touched is extremely important, uh, women and the work of women. So one of the best ways to reduce population or, or stop the exponential growth of population, um, and this is, this is very well documented, is by educating uh, young women, giving them access to education and, and better control to, to, their, to their bodies. And in relation to what you were saying about uh, work, um, the, the idea of getting education and then going to work and get paid for the work they do. I think it's important to separate the work that, that is part of the economy, what you were saying before, and the part that is not accounted, like the housework and raising kids. That is, is also very, very important. And, and again, is, is there are multiple perspectives and many things to say here. Um, but the idea of, of um, for example, the, the, the uh, African proverb of uh, it takes a child to, it takes a, it takes a, a village to raise a child is, is sad to see how something as important as raising the next generation has been in, in some uh, cultures has been seen as a, as a pain, as something we must, we must suffer. Um, and I, I, if I may, I'm sorry, I'm, 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 I'm taking too much time. I'm supposed to be asking you some questions, but I think it's important to, 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 uh, to give this, these points uh, um, clear to our audience. The, one of the examples that I've been reflecting personally, this is, this is just me, it's anecdotal. The, uh, when, when you are boarding a plane, um, there is always, you know, before a boarding, boarding the plane, there is always the announcement of who, who has priority. And I, I remember when I, I had the chance, the opportunity to live in Europe um, a few years. So when I was taking the plane to travel back to Mexico um, and I had kids already, um, the preference is families with kids. And it's like, you have no idea how amazing that is, you know, to give the chance to families with kids to go first. Because having a child, um, you know, sitting in, a, in an airport for a few hours is so hard for the children and the parents. And doing the same thing, aborting a plane in the US, the, the, the first people that have priority is the, the military. And that, that tells me a lot. That tells me a lot about the, I, I mean, I don't wanna make assumptions, uh, but that tells you a lot about, about you know, preferences and, and what values uh, lay behind a culture. And I'm, I'm just reflecting here on, on, on how you can take that further. And, and understand the implications of those of those decisions uh, in a, in a larger context. No, and I I touched so many things. I'm so sorry, but oh, anything you I, want to let, say? Let me just yeah. Let me just say that. Imagine if we had in our society um, opportunities like that, like the story you tell about about boarding a plane. Imagine if we had the opportunity uh, to think to consider periodically what it would feel like to be someone in a different skin or someone of a different gender or someone of a different sexual preference or someone of a different level of ability, someone in a wheelchair, say. If we had opportunities to think about putting those kinds of differences first and see those people walking onto the plane or going into the school or uh, prioritized in any kind of an emergency instead of the way it is now, which is that those kinds of differences put people at the back of the line. 
Yes. And that's another another kind of um, invisible but very important um, factor in the way our society works. It's just like invisible carbon being captured into trees. Yes. Yes, absolutely. There's lots of invisible things. And in my view, I'm an educator. It's the role of our education systems to make us aware of those things. Yes. Or actually, many people are aware, <laughs> you know, to, to, to raise up those, that, those kinds of awareness because they are very important. Yes. And I, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. No, and again, this is anecdotal just with the people that I have around me. Um, most of the people I know, I, I will say all the people I know, they, they know, they understand these things and they care about you know, the, 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 the equity and so on. Uh, the, the, the problem is the, the, the lack of options no? and the lack of actual meaningful power no so what can i do as an individual it, I, it seems that i am completely powerless all these decisions have been are taken by by people that i don't even see i sometimes i see them in in the television and that's pretty much it and and that's part of the unfairness uh know that that in a democratic country it, it should be open for for uh, people actually deciding no taking taking back the 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 demos, no, is uh, the people in in, in democracy. Um, so going going further with <laughs> with topics, we are um, going off. Can I just topic. say one other thing? Of course, well, we, were we were talking about women's um, evaluating unpaid work and, yes. and women's work in society and the important role that it has. And I just wanted to say that the I we, I believe the population question or how to limit population is is really a non-starter for the for the reasons that we've discussed. But violence against women and actual overt um, killing and, and maiming and, and uh, abusing women is uh, something else that we don't want to see, even though it's present in plain sight in our societies. And this includes rich societies and poor societies. And um, it's something that is exacerbated in times of crisis. Yes. When when there's there's stress and and pressure, women get hurt. Violence against women increases. Elaine Ederson is a, a sociologist, I think, who's done a lot of work about um, uh, to, to document this, and it's been documented in all societies, and and we're seeing this now because of COVID, and the climate crisis will, if not, if it isn't already, you know, in in places where uh, extreme weather events happen. In, in you know in times of floods, the, Elaine has done so much empirical work on this. Times of of floods or wildfires or um, ice storms, you name it, and it's <laughs> often related to climate change. Violence against women increases. Mm -hmm. So we need to see this. We need to confront this, and we need to consider these questions of equity, values, and what kind of a society we want to live in. Of course because we are together facing the biggest crisis that humanity has ever faced, which is the yes. climate crisis. I, I, yes, I cannot agree more with you. And the, the, um, one of the things that I've been, I've been repeating a lot in many of the episodes is the importance of cooperation. One of the most important traits in, in, in mankind 
humans is is um, our, our ability to cooperate. That's what has made us unique. One of the one of the things that has made made us unique as a species, and it's is so so important to understand that um, you know psychologically speaking, there are there are so many things to say about individualism and the person and the growth of individual. But as a collective, talking about all these all these things, I don't think we talk enough about the importance of cooperation. And and seeing us all as, as 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 a group at the end, no, that that we need we need we need to get our house in order in order in order to to survive as a species. We we could reach that point of of risk of survival as a species. But I would like to go back a little bit to to the the, the um, idea of a steady state economics, if you allow me, uh, connected with the population growth. Because there is a there is something that I've been thinking, and I haven't heard anybody talking about this, and is related to the idea of, of continuous growth. You no, know, in, in the classical economics, the idea that growth and 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 how our our uh, in politics are so focused on GDP GDP growth. Um, one interesting thing that we have seen in the pandemic is uh, the impact that has less people working no, in, on, the, on the economy. And as you mentioned as well, in the future, uh, by several factors, the population, the human population is known to be uh, reaching a, a, a tipping point. Uh, we don't know exactly what is going to happen. There are different theories that will probably go down. Steady depends on, on several things. But what is important here to think is that uh, no matter what, it seems it all looks like is going to tip and is going to stop increasing the, the, the population. So what is what is what is the take on on this need of, of the economic constant growth uh, linked with the with the, the population uh, reaching that tipping point? I, I I see some some really severe issues. And I don't know if, if the idea of Herman Daly of the steady state of economics has included this, this uh, issue of, of, or fact of population. Any, well, any thoughts? Herman's, Herman's uh, in, uh, first book about this um, came out in the, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, late 80s, I think. I can't remember, but you know, this is all getting to be 40, 50 years old now. People always want more. So even if there's a smaller population, people are gonna want more and more and more and more. Gonna want a fancier car, a bigger car, a bigger house, more air conditioning, whatever, whatever. I don't see a, a close connect, a one-to-one -one connection between the size of the population, where, whether it's growing or shrinking, and human beings' rapacious demands on material, uh, material things from the earth. So it, it's more about flow through, material flow through, uh -huh. which has to do with how many times do we get value from, a, say, a particular tree that we cut down. Cut down a tree, you burn it, boom, it's gone. You got value, it heated you for a day. Or you can cut down a tree and you can take the bark and make it into something that, a basket, say, and you can take the wood and make it into furniture that might give you um, contribute to your well-being yes. for 100 years. Or you can use the tree for, in one way, you can make newsprint out of it, read the newspaper, then you can use that paper for something else, 
I mean, they're, they're, the real question is, how do we transform the material inputs to our economy, if that's what you want to call it, mm-hmm. in a way that gives us value over time, repeated, yeah. in, repeated increments of value? How do we, for, for, for um, uh, iron ore, for example, you can recycle those metals you can recycle things and bring them back into the economic process and the and the process of contributing to well-being repeatedly yeah and therefore so that's about that's it, that that kind of a perspective on where well-being comes from and the relationship of well-being to material inputs exactly is much more relevant than the question of how big the human population is yeah uh, or even you know, of course, we have to keep the drawdowns of what what ecological economists call natural capital, yes. these material inputs to the society. We have to keep those drawdowns as as low as possible through such things as recycling, but also design for sustainability. Also, controlling or thinking about advertising and social media and and uh, yes. our demands for the new. Yes. rather than the recycled. Yes. I mean, that's a social con- construct. Absolutely, absolutely. So this design for sustainability, that, that's, that's my thing. That's what yes, I, that's I, what I focus on. Yes, it's yes, you see my it's eyes really glowing. It's really important, Victor. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, thing, the thing is how we understand the word design. And, and that's very interesting what is happening in, in, the, in the world of design that is, is, is moving beyond the physical objects. And it's part of my work. It's part of what I'm doing here with this with this uh, podcast, and 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 I'm preparing also a book that I'm I'm hoping to at least propose a, a, a way of seeing design and the importance of the systemic aspect and the complexity of things. I mean, just discussing one topic now, we have touched so many others. So it's, it's impossible to think about you know, economic growth without thinking about you know, the social aspect and the psychological aspect and the ecological aspect. So why, why talk about economics uh, without a biologist and without a sociologist and without a feminist? You know, it's, 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 I see it as a, such a clear necessity and that, that really bugs me. It, it troubles me. But, they are um, all part of the accounting for our home. Of course, exactly. That's, that's why I wanted to, to make this, uh, this uh, etymology of the word economics, because it's, it's our home. It's yep. how we organize and account for the things and the people in our home. Yep. Um, I, I, I would like to move on. I know it's, it's, it's time is flying. The conversations, when conversations are so interesting, this, this, this happens all the time. Um, the, the aspect of feminism in ecological economics, I'm, I'm, obviously you have made many, many comments right now about, about um, uh, women's aspect in, in, in all of these. But if, if we could explore a little bit more, you could elaborate a little bit more, what is the contribution um, of, of this feminist side in, in ecological economics or in economics in general? Feminist theory has made a lot of a, a number of contributions that are, I think are really important in thinking about the relationship between economics and well-being. Uh, one is the idea of intersectionality. So gender, uh, it, it, number one, is not a binary. <laughs> it's way more complicated. And uh, gender can be seen as one 
signifier among many for human difference. And so the idea of, of someone who's a woman may be treated differently from a man, but someone who's a black woman will be treated even more differently. And someone who's a black gay woman will be treated even more, you know, so, so these, these, these signifiers that we, that we make as humans, we create them in our culture to help us distinguish and among the people that are in our lives. And uh, it, it goes back to perhaps, you know, pre-agricultural times when you had to immediately guess who was a friend and who was a foe. <laughs> uh, but we live in a, in a, in a world now where those kinds, those kinds of snap judgments and superficial judgments that we make about other people are no longer helpful. They don't help us to create that global community and uh, communicate across differences to, 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 to join forces, you know, to join our collective efforts together uh, to solve the problems that exist. And exactly the fact that some people have different lived experiences than others means that we have to bring together and communicate about all those lived experiences in order to solve the problems that, that, uh, have, that are arising in the world. Feminist, feminist theory is also really useful in um, going beyond binaries, uh, not talking about it's either this or that, but, but you know, considering a, a more multidimensional reality um, that is also helpful in, I think, in times of climate crisis. Um, and there are other feminist contributions related to the way power works in society, mm -hmm. related to uh, a lot of the things that we've been talking about mm -hmm. from population and violence against women to unpaid work. Um, I find feminist economics and feminist ecological economics to be a really rich uh, field of, of exploration and thought. And uh, um, women around the world are building movements and literatures and uh, theoretical contributions and practical contributions in many, many ways that often don't receive the um, the right level of, of recognition and respect in my, in my view. And that's a function of the economic system that we live in. I yeah. can use the word patriarchy. It exists, yeah. it's all around. Yeah. And, no, it, and it is fundamental to capitalism. Yes, no, I, I agree. I agree completely. I, 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 I've been trying to inform myself because I was, I'm still ignorant, but a little bit less than before. I've been, I've been uh, trying to read in the last few years much more about um, feminism and, um, uh, you know, in, inter intersectionality. And yeah, it's uh, the, 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 the type of information that I have found, at least from my understanding right now, makes uh, uh, or I can make a direct connection between what is necessary in terms of sustainability and su sustaining life on the planet, not only human life, but all type of life, and um, a lot of feminist concepts. I've been trying to talk about this with my students, and I, I, I hope I will make it into a, a chapter of a book that is, 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 is on the works, where I explain a little bit further this in, in, in more detail. 
because it's it's not it's not about when I when I when I speak about this with some some of my men uh, uh, male colleagues, some of them have this fear that somehow feminism is is uh, uh, is looking for revenge, and is looking for the demise of 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 the figure of of man. You know? and obviously it's 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 not that it's not going that direction. Is is um, I see it as as something lacking to give balance to what we have and a much uh, nicer picture for the future, no? a, a much kinder future. And I, I'll, I'll stop there because I'm just making some, some very personal point now comments. Men um, can be feminists too. So yeah, of Men course. Men can be feminists and they are welcome. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, this this is this is not about making men less or 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 you know a revenge. It's, it's on the contrary. Um, so going going back to the topics, uh, I, I was mentioning that I'm I'm trying to focus these interviews in the ideas of change, uh, long-term thinking, and limits. Uh, I think the topic of limits has been explored already in, in many ways. Um, I would like just to ask, um, uh, reaching close to the end of, of the of this chat. Um, in terms of long-term thinking and economics, I again, it's, 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 it's quite clear that we live in a world that everything is is the short-termism. No, it's everything everything for the next quarter of profits and 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 what is going to be the next product that we can we can sell and so on. How how do you see economics or ecological economics, if you want, uh, approaching this idea of long-term thinking? The COVID crisis and what it has revealed about the, the ability of governments to inject massive amounts of money into the economy has removed the veil from a lot of people's eyes. I mean, and, until COVID hit, people still believed that governments needed to balance their budgets, just like people need to balance their budgets. But for a long time, we've, many people have not balanced their budgets. You buy, you, you buy a house and then you have a huge mortgage. You may or may not pay it off in your lifetime, but the banks don't seem to really care as long as you're contributing your, money, your mortgage payment every month, right? It, it, the idea of this being an albatross or something that you hang around your neck and that you know eventually you want to pay, pay off your debts, it, it's kind of been eroded over time. And now with governments, billions of dollars in debt. It happened as, low, as long ago as the 1990s, early 2000s, when um, China, would be, be, the United States government changed the rules so that China could be in the World Trade, in the GATT, the World Trade Organization. And then suddenly uh, consumers in North America began to buy massive amounts of goods produced in, in China for money which went to China. Uh, you know the international finance. The whole the whole thing is a it's a mystery, and it is not explained for most people. I would say not for all. It's a it, it it's not explained by uh, neoclassical economics that you learn in university. So there's a divergence between the way world action the world actually works and the theoretical tools that we continue to teach our young people, which are supposed to explain to them how these things function. Um, in terms of long-term thinking, 
what's happened during COVID is that governments have suddenly stepped up and said, we'll give you money to pay your rent if you were working in a job before. Uh, we will uh, support workers' salaries if you're working in sectors that we think are important, frontline workers. Will we change the salaries? Will we inter intervene in the market to the extent that we will pay nurses enough to attract them into the system over the long term? Oh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We don't want to mess around with the supply and demand system of labor. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just ludicrous how, how, how we're expected to believe these things about uh, the, way, the way things function. So for long-term thinking about what we really value and what is important in an economic system or a political economy or a culture, I think that the, what we're seeing with populism and with a, a sort of a bifurcation in society between those who believe that, that the decision makers of society have their interests at heart and those who don't, is it this this crisis, if you want to call it that, and I think it is a crisis, a crisis for democracy, mm -hmm. it's a crisis for well-being, it's a crisis for equity, for sure. Um, it it what what it means to me is that a there's a a new and longer term kind of economic thinking that's required, and and that has to start with values. It has to start with what kind of society we want to live with, live in. I think most people want to live in a more equitable society than we have now. Most people want to live in a society where everyone has access to healthcare and education and the means for a decent livelihood. And that means not just the people in the country where we live, but the countries everywhere, all over the world. There is, I think that there is an understanding uh, at some level that an equitable world is a desirable world. And because of what we've said before, in my view, it is also that equity is also the key to, to addressing climate change and to and to make to making sure that what other whatever humans there are living on the earth will be able to continue to live there decently and in a way that helps us to, that allows us to get to a net zero, no additional carbon into the atmosphere type, type, um, type way of living. Yeah. So the long-term long -term thinking, it seems to me that capitalism and, and therefore neoclassical economics is reaching the end of its run. We can't bear it anymore. We can't, we can't, we can't continue with these kinds of fallacies and injustices. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's over. I think that's a, that's a really good word to, to use, fallacies. And I have seen uh, many uh, prominent uh, economists uh, really arguing and, and, and questioning really core values and core things. Uh, there are some interesting podcasts, uh, for example, the, the, from the uh, New Economic Thinking Institute. They have a very interesting podcast uh, where I recommend to, to, to hear. 
And I have heard also some very interesting economics. Uh, you know, obviously, Tim, Tim Jackson is, mm -hmm. is extraordinary, the things he, he, he proposes. And uh, uh, I have heard some interesting things from Mariana Matsukato. She, she um, will, I invite her to the podcast. I hope she says yes, because I would really uh, like to understand some, some of the things that she proposes. Um, but anyway, I'm going again off topic. I'm sorry, my mind is always connecting things and people. Um, the, 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 last, the last bit before we, we really go to the end of the podcast is, is about change. And um, I, I would like to, to ask in, in terms of what you have seen ecological economics has changed in, in the way the classical economics works. What have been the, 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 the most important impacts, if, if any? I don't think ecological econ economics has had a big impact on the way the world works or on the discipline of economics. Most ecological economists don't even get hired into economics departments. Hmm. But, and why you think is that? Well, because it's so fundamental, such a fundamental challenge to the way to the to the whole sort of canon of of ec of the economics discipline. But ecological economists do get invited to uh, to to talk to government officials mm -hmm. in for example in Canada the Ministry of Natural Resources or um, in at the level of economic development or um, for social social decision making I think government policymakers um, are at the front lines of of looking for tools that help them make decisions in a responsible way a way that's responsible for to taxpayers who are mm -hmm. contributing the budget but also in terms of uh, social values and equity and um, the other priorities that governments may have. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me that there's more appetite for hearing things about things like the ecological footprint or carbon, you know, carbon footprint by decision makers and, and, and international, um, international groups of, of governments than there is within the academic discipline. Okay. Okay. Good. But I think yeah, the change, the, the, the focus for change, the, the impetus for change comes from the grassroots. It comes from people organizing. It mm -hmm. comes from Fridays for, for Future. It comes from the youth. It comes yes. from the leadership, the incredible leadership of Indigenous people uh, in Canada and, in, and across the world to, to stand up and protect the resources that they, that, that they feel responsible yep. for that they still are able to exert responsibility for um it's it's that is what is reducing carbon already the the carbon emissions already as we know from the report that the indigenous environment Net network uh, published a few months ago um showing that that indigenous leadership and blockades and movements have prevented about 25 percent of the, of North America's carbon emissions from from going in, out going into the air. In other words, it's it's way more important than any government policies. Yes. Or any or any consumption movements. And it's not accounted for, and it's not in the news. And oh, it's, it's invisible. Even... Let's look. Let's yeah. see. Okay. Let's okay. listen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so we, we need to close. And I normally close the episode every episode with the same thing question, same three questions to everyone. And these are very hypothetical, very conceptual. So no right or wrong answers, whatever comes to mind. So 
Uh, here goes the first. Um, the longest living species are cyanobacteria that have existed for more than 2 billion years. And for example, the oldest uh, standing human structure is just a few thousand years. So how do you see human development feasible from this point of view? What should we be doing or stop doing in order to be as successful as a species as, as a cyanobacteria? One thing is human longevity on the earth. And I don't think there's any chance that humans will ever outstrip cyanobacteria. We, they, they have a big lead. They have a big head start, right? But another question is about human, um, human, uh, human culture and humans' ability to uh, create uh, a, the kind of society that reflects our that reflects values of, about ethics and um, and human interrelationship across our species and also beyond our species with other species, those, those things are more likely to be in our hands. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that the challenge for us over the next 30 to 50 years is to uh, bear in mind what our priorities are. What are we trying to do here? Yes. Are we trying to grow the economy out of existence? Are we trying to have to to devolve into wars and fight fights over territory and over over who has access to what, mm -hmm. or are we trying to actually create uh, a form of human culture across the species across the world that yeah. reflects our potential? Yes, yes, exactly. That is the human potential that we should not lose from sight. No the positiveness in human potential. Um, second question, um, from your perspective and your experience, what is the importance of failure in discovery and human progress? Oh, if you don't fail, you don't learn what's a dead end. <laughs> failure is a, is a crucial part. And as anybody who has, has been involved with developing COVID vaccines or any other important scientific discovery, you fail, 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 fail for 99% of the time until you finally succeed. And then, and why, then you go, yay. Why we, punish, <laughs> why we punish failure in society? Why, why we, uh, we fire people when they made a mistake? Uh, you know, mothers don't do that. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's more, more the idea of... of um, or many mothers. Oh, I, I shouldn't generalize, but you well, know, no, but... of course, you, you, you uh, when you when a child is learning to walk, it's going to fall down many, many, many times. Yes, you be there and you help. You hold their hand. You lift them up again. There, there, there is a word in English that that just is, is, is escaping my mind. Is 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 not the idea of growth. It's the idea of allowing someone or helping someone to grow. You no, know? and by that I mean. Um, uh, personally and mentally and ethically and is is uh, kind of elevating a person is part of the education that we get we get from our parents and society and i think that's that's an important aspect that that i think we are missing the point that we are always growing and we are always in the need for for that uh, um, support yes getting getting you know help from everyone to to yeah. to to grow and again I'm, I'm so sorry i'm the word is slipping my mind um i'm sorry we need to move on then the last last question so describe for us the future of your choosing 
you decide how far in the future, 100 years, 1,000 years from now, what, what period of time will you choose and, and what, what humanity will look like in that moment? Um, I'm just, just right off the top of, of the, uh, off the cuff right now, I'd like to live in a world where, um, where people are taught not just to walk and talk and make money in the world, but also are taught um, to respect diversity, to welcome it, to seek out diversity, and to uh, where communication skills and conflict resolution skills are, are part of the package of um, wisdom that one generation imparts to another. I think that those, that those skills of conflict resolution and communication across diversity are the single most important thing for human well-being and for human continuance. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's, it's been obviously clearly overwhelming the beautiful answers that I've been getting from, from all, all my guests. And what you were saying before, I'm pretty sure every single human being wants to live in a better world, a world that is fair for everyone and the world where everybody has a chance to live a, a good life. Is, is, um, is the, the complicated part, I guess, is, is sit down and agree on how to arrive to that point. But thank you, thank you very much. It's, it's been wonderful. This chat has been really, really beautiful. And I appreciate so much your time for us here. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. Thanks a lot. All the best. As before, I will take just a few more minutes of your time for a couple of last reflections. First of all, I have to say that sadly, Mariana Mazzucato declined my request for an interview. In a final episode of this first season, I will chat about the other experts I tried to reach out. It has been a very interesting experience, and also the many topics that are still to be included in these conversations. The world of economics, as boring or indecipherable as it may be for some of us, it is extraordinarily important. We have lost the meaning and purpose of economics, and left it on its own, to modify the world for the benefit of the few, through the cost for the many, and even the planet itself. As we have heard in other episodes, overall, things come down to a key question. What type of society we want to live in? If we assume we all want to live in a thriving world, where we all have the opportunity to live decent, meaningful lives, we need to start by asking what that means, what that looks like. Gandhi said it long ago, the world has enough for everybody's needs, but not for everybody's greed. A key first point is to give value to natural resources. It cannot be that nature has no value in our economic system. That only promotes the overconsumption of resources to the point of depletion that, as said by Dr. Perkins, has led to globalization, colonialism, imperialism, and also collaterally to climate change. If we cannot agree on how to value nature instead, or on top of, our, of it, uh, we should give nature legal status as entities. That has been done before for some rivers and forests, and it seems a good path to have a little bit more respect and a better management for the resources of our home. The following key point is, to my view, 
to stop letting alone the world of economics and economists having the last word, or the most influenced saying in matters related to human development. As it was discussed with Dr. Perkins, all things are connected and are interdependent. Human life is inexorably dependent from ecosystem services. We should include in the decision-making process other experts too. And I know there are other experts that are consulted, but usually final decisions are made taking into consideration exclusively the economic aspect. Lastly, is what we discussed about the necessary reframing on women's access to education, work, and deeper participation in society's decision-making. It is hard to sustain why half the population has been systemically made aside. It is plainly and simply shameful. The conversation with Dr. Perkins was full of many important topics, but I will stop for now. As always, I appreciate greatly you joining me. Your attention and time is much appreciated. There are a couple more interviews coming, so please don't forget to subscribe and comment. And thank you very much. I'll see you in the next one. Future Exploration is produced and written by me, Victor Martinez. Music is composed by Rafael Crooks, Udayana Lugo, and Mauro and Daniel Martinez. Future Exploration is licensed under the Creative Commons with attribution and non-commercial use.